All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Welcome back, everyone. I hope the holiday season is treating you all well. Not gonna lie, it took me a little bit longer to get into the season and also getting back to you guys um, than I thought than I thought it was. Um, I was really sick. Uh, not gonna lie, uh, it it was pretty fucking scary. So um, yeah, it took me a little bit longer to get back to you guys. Um, my pancreas was like super pissed off at me, but you know what? I'm back on the mend, and I would like to take the time to thank you all for like being so chill about my absence thank you uh I also really want to thank like a handful of people who were like super ride or die you know helping me out like throughout all of that because like I didn't really tell anybody you know keep that shit to myself you know um yes I wanted to thank uh Mr. What Had Happened I wanted to thank Candace and Vanessa I wanted to thank Mike and Daytron I wanted to thank all of you guys for like taking super good care of the homie during the illness when I was down with the sickness Ooh, ah, 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 ah. yuck yuck so thank you all as always I would like to take the time to oh and also to my kid Camille wait stop let's back rewind that kid is amazing Thank you. My firstborn was really helpful with mom. And I am super appreciative. <laughs> Chef's kiffs. Love you, kid. Anywho, back to the script. So, um, as always, I would like to take the time to thank you for joining me and lending me your ear. I know that you can listen to anyone, so I am always so happy you chose to listen to me. Um, thank you so much again for continuing to spread the what had happened word, helping me grow the listenership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is your shout out time. Let's see here. Welcome back. Atlanta, Alpharetta, Savannah, Waynesboro, Canton, and Augusta, Georgia. Always lovely to see you. New York City, the Bronx. Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Albany, Schenectady, and Buffalo. Hey there, Chicago, Libertyville, Aurora, Deerfield, Schaumburg, uh, Mattoon, and Crystal Lake, <laughs> Illinois. Welcome back, friends, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Eden Prairie, Fergus Falls, Oseo, and Clearbrook, Minnesota. What's good, St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Blue Springs, Joplin, and Springfield, Missouri. How's it going, Tony, Burning, Birmingham, Alexander City, Vestavia Hills, Bessemer, Montgomery, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I'm so happy to see you, Queensland, Victoria, Perth, Brisbane, Adelaide, Melbourne, and Tasmania, Australia, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, New Zealand. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, Stockholm, Sweden, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, The Hug, and uh, Utrecht. Netherlands, I love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and all of the other socials. Also, don't forget there's like an email address. So feel free to drop me a line or two. Like, you know, first time listener, long time listener, first time emailer, you know the drill. Keep that shit clean. You heard me. 
no dirty stuff. Um, but for surezies, if there's like a case that you want to hear me discuss, please drop into those DMs and let me know and I'll see what I can do. Let's know some cases are really hard to find information on, but where there's a will, there's a way. Um, let's see here. Last episode, I discussed the murderous spree Thor Christensen went on in California in the late seventies. This week I will be telling you and I didn't even realize until like I'm vapid, I'm so sorry, but it's actually the eight year anniversary of this crime. So this is more for me like a memorial of the family. So I'll be telling you what had happened to a family with a promising future who lost their lives eight years ago today, December 26, 2014, in Apple Valley, Minnesota. David Crawley was born on July 7, 1985, to engineer and business owner Dan and Catherine Crawley in Minnesota. David was the second of three children, so he had an older brother and a younger sister. As a young man, David loved dressing up in camo and playing airsoft with his friend Mitch. So this was like freshman year in high school. The military-themed games evolved to scripting and filming hours of play with Dan Sr.'s camcorder. The boys would film their movies throughout the week and screen them together over the weekends. When David was a junior in high school, he told his parents he and Mitch planned to enlist in the Army as soon as they graduated from high school. So they were going to do, like, the buddy program. While his parents would have preferred their son forego the military and go to college, they understood David's call to serve his country, and they, like, totally respected it, like most parents do. I mean, like, my dad kind of, like, was like, y'all don't want her. It's funny. My dad was like, no, 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 you don't want her. And this was to the Marines. And so, like, I, I went to the Army for five seconds. And then, like, September 11th happened. And then, like, the Marines and I got to talking. And uh, I went to the Marines. And my dad was like, because he was a Marine, too. It was pretty funny. Sidebar. But I did it. Semper Fi. Anywho. So, I actually, that actually comes it plays into this because I will obviously give you a little bit of side input on this. So, um, you know, following his graduation from Owatonna High School, June 2004, friends David and Mitch shipped off for basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia. When the two received their first set of orders, Mitch was sent to Afghanistan and David to Germany. Unlike his peers who spent their free time going to bars and clubs, David opted to staying in his room where he read chemistry and calculus books and taught himself German. Okay. That's cool, actually. Like, I'm, I'm not even mad at that. Like, listen, I spent so much yen. <sighs> the Yenjamin spent clubbing and bar hopping and participating in all of the festivities around me when I was stationed in Japan and I was deployed to Japan. It was crazy. It was a lot like, you know, oh, well, but I had fun, you know, but I also had a lot of time where I spent in my room reading books and stuff. So I actually really can understand where he was from, where he was coming from. I just happened to have like balance with that, like, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't go out 
every weekend and on the weeknights and stuff like that that was reserved for like reading books and you know catching up with family which meant you had to stay up ridiculous hours because of the time difference and stuff anyways back to the script so then in 2006 david went to iraq cannot relate to this part um fortunately i guess I guess we'll be a little bit of that. So while in Iraq, David worked as a mortarman. During that tour, David was one of the first responding after the, a car bomb took out over 40 soldiers. So the carnage that David witnessed stuck with him. And it went like unchecked, unhelped, you know, they didn't, they didn't give a shit. He didn't, he didn't, he probably didn't say anything either. By the end of 2006, David returned to Germany. In 2007, David was stationed at Fort Hood in Texas. So one fateful evening in the early spring of 2008, while out at a bar in Waco, David locked eyes on a captivating woman. Kamel Rasul Alam was born on a U.S. military base in Saudi Arabia on November 20th, 1986 to Anjum and Naila Alam. When Kamel was 12 years old, her family moved to Pakistan to be closer to family. In 2005, Kamel, her sister, and parents moved to Texas from Pakistan. In 2008, Kamel was a senior, was in her senior year at Baylor University. The day after meeting Kamel, David introduced her as his girlfriend. That's kind of like a red flag, but it's also something that happens quite a bit in the military, not for nothing, especially like for the duders who like really lock on to somebody. I've seen it happen. Um, so the two were like inseparable during this time david was informed that due to stop loss stop move his enlisted his enlistment contract was going to be extended and he was going to be deploying to afghanistan now i can understand okay so stop loss stop move i had that happen to me while i was in japan and like we were ready to come back to the states and we were told nobody's going anywhere and it wrecks, like, it wreaks havoc on your home life if you don't have that shit on lock. So, David immediately proposed. Kamel respectfully went to her father to discuss, you know, she and David's plans to marry. And she explained to her father that she was deeply in love with David and he with her. She told her father that the two planned to wed in two days' time, and David would be deploying to Afghanistan in two weeks. Anjum gave the couple his blessing, because, like, basically, there was no sense in fighting it. You know, like, while Kamel was there talking to her dad, David was, like, I think outside, like, in the car or something, right? And so, like, at some point, he, like confronts her dad like and he's like be easy breezy cover girl you guys have my blessing like i can see that you guys are serious about this you guys have thought this through you know hell high horses all of that could not stop you 
from getting married to who am I to object? I would love to still have a relationship with my daughter. So if it means giving, you know, my blessing, then so be it. That's basically the gist of it. So on May 22nd, 2008, the couple wed. Kamel, who was raised Muslim, converted to Christianity for David. And I, it didn't specify when that conversion of faith happened, but it happened sometime during the during the marriage. Begrudgingly, two weeks later, the newlyweds said their goodbyes as David deployed. Following that first tour to Iraq and then the stop-loss-stop move, David had become jaded and discontented with being in the military. He told his commanding officer he could no longer be responsible for the lives of others, so he was placed in the mailroom while he was deployed. So while on leave, like I guess they get a little bit of R and R again. I don't know because I didn't, I didn't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan, so I don't know how that that happens. But I, I know it works. I know I know how it works out, kind of. So he had a little bit of leave time. And I believe they met in, like, Europe or something like that. And they briefly reunited. And when they did that, they became pregnant. In the spring of 2009, Kamel received the, Ri the Rising Young Professional Award at Baylor. On June 23, 2009, David was discharged from the Army. He'd spent a total of 39 and a half months of his enlistment abroad. <sighs> Which is rough. That's really rough. Out of, say, four years, you know, he spent oh, the bulk of his time gone. He barely had time to, like, be on U.S. soil in Texas before he went back to, yeah, that's a lot. That's got to wreak havoc on one as well. So August 6, 2009, David and Kamel became parents. Their daughter... Renaya or Ronnie for sure. I think it's Rainy. Rainy Ronnie. I can't remember from the documentary. It's been so long since I actually watched that. For sure. Was she was the apple of her parents' eyes for sure. So while David was happy to be out of the army and home with his wife and daughter, he was still quite raw and adjusting to everything. You know, um a month after the baby was born, they packed up and moved to Minnesota. So, like, being back home was great for David, but Kamel felt isolated. So, like, let's remember this. Her family was living in Texas. Yeah, they weren't living in Waco, but they were living in Texas. So, she had, you know, some family. There was a home. You know, there was some part of her that was connected to Texas. Moving from Texas to Minnesota, where he was from, was isolating for her, you know, um, which when we get into this, you'll see what I'm saying, but it isolated her. And so for the first six months, Kamel would call home crying, expressing how depressed and miserable she was. Like she fussed about the weather. She was having a hard time adjusting and David wouldn't allow her to socialize like during this time, David had gotten reconnected with his best friend, Mitch, and the two had always planned on going to school together, studying film. When Mitch got discharged from the army, he moved back to Minnesota and got a job hanging drywall while he waited for David to come home, essentially. Now that David was back, the two enrolled 
in the digital video and media program at the Minnesota School of Business. Hey, not mad at that. Not mad at that at all. I love it when you got a plan. Love it, love it, love it. And I love it when you got a buddy to do it with you. Like, they've been homies since they were, like, 14 years old. You know, this is, that's endearing that they would be able to do that and, like, share passions together hard enough to want to do everything like that together. So while David was in school, Kamel worked at the University of Minnesota as a research assistant while working on her master's degree in nutrition. Kamel was a social butterfly while David was, like, a total introvert. The two bumped heads slightly because David was insistent that she not befriend others. All they needed was each other's company for the most part. And, like, there were times where, like, Kamel would basically say, like, people suck. Every, you know, like, David's the only person in the world that, like, I like to be around. You know, things of that nature. But at the same time, she still craved, like, friendships. So... At one point, Kamel did befriend a co-worker with whom the two would eventually go into like a small side business together. And Sarah, the friend, said that the closer she and Kamel got, the more it seemed that David would insert himself. At one point, David went so far as to insist that Kamel record all of their conversations, red flag, with Sarah because he wanted her to have documentation of everything like just in case the two ceased working together and things went south i keep circling back to david's displeasure with the government having served but his evolved feelings and beliefs became the central focus of his life david was described as a libertarian who was disenchanted with the government after serving his time in the army namely his two tours to the middle east David felt there was nefariousness afoot within the military-industrial complex, which would lead to paranoia. David was also, like, a fan of alt-right conspiracy theory talking head Alex Jones. And at some point in 2010, a professor of David's got him in touch with Danny Mason. So Danny Mason emails David a few links for some conspiracy theories and suppressed information like all the WikiLeaks, stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure like Pizzagate and some other stuff. You know what I mean? Like, so he hits him up with this information. And after taking in all of the content in about 24 hours, like nonstop, David told Danny he was on to something. So, this is where the premise of a gray state came from. Or, of gray state. It was, quote, the living environment between a police state and dictatorship. The film takes place in a near-future dystopia where the civil rights of Americans are hostage to the brutalities of the federal government. Huh. David and Danny crafted the scenes for the trailer, and Mitch filmed it before the first draft of the script was written. With a budget of $6,000 that, that they crowdsourced, the trio were able to film a visually compelling two-and-a-half-minute trailer, which covered all of the themes and ideas David was passionate about. So, with the help of YouTube, Facebook, and, like, alt-right groups and conspiracy theorists postings and things of that nature um it was getting 
some traction. Inside the Crowley residence, a twenty foot a twenty five foot wall covered in post its um existed. It was the film storyboard. David's wall, if read horizontally, told the film's story and vertically for the themes. It was at this time in 2011, when the film was in its infancy, that Kamel confided to Sarah Johnson, her friend and like business associate, that she was contemplating leaving David. While he was, quote, the only person in the world I like, as Kamel would tell Sarah, she was discontented, like being in the being the primary breadwinner, as David was not helping. So after expressing her feelings with David on that one, he did obtain work as like a videographer and cameraman. In 2013, the first draft of Grace Date was complete, and David sent it to a consultant in Colorado. And this was around the second time that Kamel contemplated leaving David. The weight of the film and the darkness and content, it was like a cloud over their home. It was all consuming and like Kamel was tired. Like she yearned for some more traditional, you know, some more traditionally normal, a normal home environment, especially for their daughter that wasn't surrounded with like martial law and apocalyptic themes every waking moment of the day. It was like you... We're eating it, breathing it, sleeping it, taking it in constantly. Kind of like me with true crime. And sometimes I got to take a little breaky poo, you know. Sometimes I got to like switch it up. But there was no switching it up over there. You got to have balance. When Kamel called her father and told him that she didn't feel she could live like she had been. Her father told her that while he sympathized with her... She had a family, and therefore she had to make it work. As Kamel worked at keeping her family unit together, David revised his script and resubmitted it in 2014 to the same consultant. After receiving positive notes on his, resu- on his revised script, in May 2014, David flew to Los Angeles to begin pitching Grace State. There was one meeting in particular that showed a lot of promise with like two producers um, named Mike, first name Mike, um, and he was, it was like super promising for him, but like he was, David himself was always looking at every angle. David essentially role played, outlined, and strategized his meeting with the two mics um, he was that he was having his meeting with. In the one-hour mock meeting, David coached himself with statements like projecting power, confidence, talk fast, talk fast, easy, and project. During a dialogue about rewrites David assumed would be questioned, he responded with, look, if you want to talk rewrites, I suppose we should talk contract. So he was really trying to boost himself up. So that he didn't look like a clown or like he was naive in this meeting. You know, like he really wanted to be prepared. Also, there's that area, I believe, where you always feel like they're going to try to take advantage of you. So you have to like come up with or, or tell you no. And so you have to try to 
get that to pivot and shift in your favor. And so he was working around every possible aspect. He also kind of recorded all of this because he was recording so much of the the behind the scenes of getting this film to fruition. So while David was able to exude confidence in the days leading up to his meeting, the day before David began to crack, Kamel found David in the bathroom crying in the fetal position. He worried that the the two mics would think that David was a fraud, but Kamel calmed him down and, you know, she assured David that he was brilliant and the execs were going to love him and his work. He was kind, he was smart. You was pretty, you know, you know, the help, you know, so, but she wasn't wrong. The following day, David regrouped and delivered his pitch following most of the outline delivery that he had practiced. At the end of the meeting, the, the two mics, they felt that they were on a road to work. They were actually on a road to working with David. Like there was possible, there's, there's potential there. When David and Kamel returned home, they were like in great spirits like optimistic of the wealth they were going to amass by the fall. Kamel left her job as a dietitian and began planning the business that she wanted to establish for herself. Huh. They also did some, they also got, they borrowed a car from Anjum. He allowed them to borrow a vehicle at this time. And so they drove that back to Minnesota after their trip to Los Angeles now, shortly thereafter, in the summer, Kamel learned that her mother had been diagnosed with cervical cancer. And when Kamel and her father argued over her mother's medical treatment and chemotherapy, um, David and Kamel decided that Kamel, no, hear the, listen to the words that I say. David and Kamel decided that Kamel should cease contact with her family because they were trying to manipulate her in some way. The following day, David overheard Kamel having a heated discussion in Urdu, her native tongue, and he flew off the handle into a rage. He couldn't stand that she'd gone behind his back and continued speaking to her family the day after quote they agreed to cut them off it was after that argument with david that kamel said essentially that she realized in that moment that they weren't of a singular train of thought that they were separate people who examine and feel life differently july 2014 david had a psychotic break for 20 minutes, he had nightmarish visions. When the visions subsided, David went on as if nothing happened. The daily Crawley family business of taking their child to the babysitter, having family dinners, landscaping their Apple Valley home together, working on the film and celebrating their daughter's birthday went on throughout the summer of 2014. Having made revisions on Gray State since his meeting with the executives in May, 
David worked for 31 hours straight in September, revising the script. So it and a movie poster would arrive on September 17th, one of the two Mikes' birthdays. David was unnerved when he didn't get an immediate response from them. Like, what the hell, guys? I sent you. Like, he had really thought this out and he expected that the gesture of him submitting his revised script and the movie poster on this symbolic date, the birthday of one of these two mics, would garner. In, in almost immediate response or at least uh you know hey we uh, at least let him know that they got it he didn't get any he didn't get any response and so it freaked him out it gutted him actually um so he was super unnerved and when he didn't know was that on the other side of things is that the two producers had to break down the script and after measuring where they thought Gray State would best fit, they contacted him. Like, they contacted him on the 26th of September. Like, in, I feel like, in a manic state, he worked 31 hours straight. Because he worked for 31 hours straight, he probably hypothesized or surmised that they would be able to read through the script in a record amount of time and just be like this is it bada bing bada boom and just be ready to go straight to film that's what he wanted but it takes time on the dollars and cents side of things to see what kind of a budget would be rec you know required for this type of script location all sorts of stuff where it would fit, should it be a film, should it be broken down into a series for television, um, all sorts of stuff. Whew. So they finally contacted him on September 26th. Instead of offering David a contract to produce Grey State as a film, as David had hoped the producers would, um, they told David that they felt that Grey State was best suited as a television series, and David was gutted. The tone of his conversations no longer were about becoming famous or moving west to California. After a bout of deep depression and introspective thinking, David switched gears from working on Grey State as a movie to turning it into a documentary called Grey State The Rise. I mean, he had 31,000 hours of video footage to parse through and to, you know, really create something. The documentary, the documentary would include footage from the filming of the trailer, uh, Alex Jones, interviews with family and friends, as well as his internet supporters. Throughout his time, David and Kamel had remained estranged from her family. So her father's emails would always go without response. When Anjum emailed a picture of Nyla in the hospital, hoping to elicit communication with Kamel, 
David immediately called Anjum and told him that under no circumstances did he or Kamel want to have any contact with them. Prior to David and Kamel's estrangement in the spring, as I said before, Anjum had lent David and Kamel a car. So in an attempt to make contact with Kamel, her sister and her then fiancé, now husband, drove 16 hours from Waco, Texas to Apple Valley, Minnesota to reclaim Anjum's vehicle. The plan was to say that Anjum needed his car back and Sidra, Kamel's sister, little sister, was going to swap vehicles, leaving hers for Kamel to use. So when she and her then-fiancé, Vinny, arrived at the Crawley home at approximately 7 p.m. on October 16, 2014, Vinny stood behind Sidra. Like, he was just, he was just there, you know. Ride or die, he stood behind Sidra as she knocked on the front door. David was upset and stunned when he saw his sister-in-law and her fiancé standing on his porch, for sure. I'm here to see my sister, she calmly told David, although, like, I'm sure her heart was assuredly pounding outside of her chest. We want nothing to do with you. I thought I made that clear, David retorted before slamming the door in Sidra and Vinny's faces. When Sidra knocked on the door again, David instructed her to go sit in her car. So in that brief moment, Vinny saw the shadow of a figure behind David, which told him that Kamel was home. When David got into Sidra's car, he told her that she could not see Kamel. When Sidra explained why she and Vinny were there, David told Sidra that they needed an hour to get Andrew's car squared away, and he also said that Sidra was not going to leave her car. She'd be forced to drive herself to Waco as Vinny drove Andrew's. When Sidra said she couldn't do the 16-hour drive by herself, David snarkily told her that the deal was off and retreated to his home. So, like, Vinny and Sidra, like, looked at each other in disbelief for a moment before, you know, down-ass fiancé, ride-or-die Vinny, got out of the car by himself, strolled up to that door, and knocked on it. Vinny extended his hand, like, the super dude, the super good duder that he is, to a reluctant David and introduced himself. And, like, so, as... David was, like, reluctantly shaking Vinny's hand. Denny, or Vinny let, let this slip in. He was like, listen, her mom needs her daughter. So Vinny continues as David, like, is shaking the hand. And he goes, you know, you said an hour, right? And so then when Sidra and Vinny returned to the house an hour later, Sidra found a photograph of herself, Kamel, and their mother like on the dashboard or whatever. And on the back, Kamel wrote, quote, I have always loved you and mom and always will. In that moment, Sidra decided to defy the agreement with David, who was like totally watching from the living room window, like a creeper. Um, she, she, she decided that she was going to leave her car just in case Kamel like needed to get the fuck out of Dodge at some point. 
Sidru wrote in a response on the back of the picture, quote, I love you too. And then she and Vinny hurriedly drove away in Anjum's car. Now, completely cut off from her family, this is when Kamel's mental health began to, de- to deteriorate. Um, they're saying that on October 30th, 2014, Kamel began displaying delusions by proxy, which is a rare shared mania where one of the two is dominant. In this instance, David was the dom. And like after years of indoctrination, separation from others, um, insulating themselves in a world consumed by her husband's paranoid thoughts, delusions, and conspiratorial thoughts, um, Kamel finally began to share in David's delusions and mania. So, on October 30th, while David was at Home Depot, Kamel experienced a series of mortifying visions. When David returned home, he made a journal entry describing how Kamel was quite was quote raptured but she was still alive he paraphrased her version of events that she saw and the cryptic message that she returned with from her experience um and it was basically saying some stuff like i'm egyptian we've known each other over a series of lifetimes I've come back for you and it's time for us to ascend and the the babe you know our daughter's coming with us as well. Um you know the end is an eye essentially. By the pricking of my thumb something wicked this way comes. She didn't say that but I'm saying it. That was essentially what she was getting at. And he took her seriously because he himself had been you know having his own He had his own psychotic break in that 20-minute span in the summertime. So now they're sharing in their delusionment or delusional. I don't even know how to say it. They were both equally delusional, and it was off the same shit. By Thanksgiving, Kamel had stopped working on the book she'd planned to write about eating disorders. She talked to a former co-worker that Thanksgiving, like over coffee and stuff, And she explained that she was now researching and reading about, like, religions. And then Kamel explained that there were some people who could go without food for 40 days at a time and others who could go without food altogether, like, altogether, throughout the world. Kamel also confided that she'd ceased leaving her home. (sighs) Oh. One week before Christmas, David and Kamel paid one of David's friends a visit. While the two were described as being in good spirits, the friend noted that in a quick visit, David gave him back books. He gave him books about script writing and filmmaking, as well as returned everything that he had borrowed from him. And if you know anything about people who have made up their minds about how they're going to exit the planet. Um, This is something that a lot of people who have done that 
and made that decision, uh, the something that they do, they will return things, they will gift you things, um, trying to basically clean up their debts. Uh, so it was a very quick visit. And as soon as the friend, you know, made the exchange and gave David the things that he had that he had borrowed, David and Kamel left. A few days before Christmas, David messaged a friend from the army that he hadn't spoken to in a very long time. The two drank as they caught up from behind their keyboards. At the end of their conversation, David asked his friend to delete their correspondence. His exact words were, quote, If you're truly my brother and my friend, you'll do it. I promise you, you'll understand soon. David's final journal entry reads, quote, I am no one. It is everyone else who is someone. Uh, it's said that uh, Christmas Day-ish, or the day after Christmas, uh, David had made a list of goals for the upcoming year, and he noted that December 30th was the last day for crowdsourcing for money, you know, for the movie. So he was really up against a tight schedule. And also, I think that he had already raised about $63,000, some, somewhere around there, uh, in record time. But he obviously was going to need way more money to create this film. Uh so, his computer activity concluded at 11.17 on the evening of December 26th. Here's what we know for sure. Kamel and their daughter were lying together on the living room floor when... David, armed with the pistol that the couple kept inside the bedroom safe, shot Kamel twice in the head and their daughter behind the ear once. Using Kamel's blood, David wrote the words, Allahu Akbar, which means God is great, on the wall. Near Kamel's body, a Quran was opened to a prayer of forgiveness. David left a bloody trail of footprints from the kitchen to his office. On the kitchen counter, David opened his laptop and typed, I have loved you all with all my heart, of, with all of my heart. Another tab opened on the laptop played an eerie, 53-song playlist on repeat. David then sat next to his wife and daughter's body was on the living room floor and shot himself. That same day, his brother left Christmas presents on the front porch. Although the family's dog whimpered and pawed at the living room window, nothing seemed out of place, so his brother left. As the days turned to weeks, packages, presents, newspapers, and mail began to accumulate 
on the Crowley front porch. On January 17th, a neighbor had returned home from his holiday vacation when he got home and noticed the mess of parcels on the Crowley porch, whom he assumed were also away on holiday and decided to be like super neighborly and neatly stack and arrange the items on that porch. While neatly arranging everything, the neighbor heard the family dog barking inside the home, which alarmed the neighbor because, you know, it was out of character for the family to be gone for so long without taking their pet with them. And also, like, if you're home, why the hell is all this shit on your porch? Like, let's be real. So the neighbor looks into the living room window and he saw the bodies of the Crawleys on the living room floor calls the police when the police arrived they found that the backsliding door was left ajar upon entry they found the three members of the crawley family deceased in advanced stages of decomposition the 53 song playlist was still playing on a loop in the background which is like doubly eerie <sighs> triple that with the family dog had basically survived by scavenging off of her owner's corpses. Kamel and David were identified by pictures of tattoos on their bodies. That's how gruesome this whole thing was. Also, don't forget, he... Well, I'm sure he shot himself in the head, but he definitely shot his wife and daughter in the head, so there was nothing to go by as far as facial recognition which is so sad and then himself as well and so that's why they had to identify them by their tattoos following the heartbreaking murder suicide a memorial was held in the family's memory you know in minnesota now due to nyla's deteriorating health sidra and anjum avoided telling her what had happened for a while like she would ask Sidra like why hasn't Kamel tried to call me does she not know I'm in hospice blah 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 blah. and you know Sidra was like why do you keep bringing them up you know they don't want to talk to us you know she basically just kept it the way you know the way that her mom had remembered everything as them just being estranged and then like finally one day I guess she reached a breaking point, you know, and she was also tired, I'm sure, of lying to her mother. She was like, do you really want to know what happened? Let me tell you what had happened. What had happened is they're dead. And then, like, you know, mom's like, what happened? Was it a car accident? Um, you know, like, where's the baby? So on and so forth. You know, is she okay? What's going on with David? And Sidra was like, no. He killed your daughter and your granddaughter, and then he killed himself. And so she had to break that news to her mother, which was heartbreaking as well. So huh, she said it like just all just slipped out. Now, meanwhile, back in Minnesota, David's family was also grappling with all of the unanswered questions left in the aftermath. So his father, sister, and some of David's closest friends worked tirelessly sifting through journals 13,000 hours of videos and like social media postings to try to find answers. Now, on David's desktop, David's friend Mason Hendricks found a video specific, you know, sp 
it was specifying the order in which he wanted all of his videos placed to create his documentary, The Rise. Now, Mason followed David's explicit instructions and released the documentary on Vimeo. Danny Mason is the maintainer of the Gray State Facebook page. He still hopes to make that movie. <sighs> and here's what had happened. First of all, I am very aware of the conspiracies that swirled around this tragic story. And I still continue eight years later. But I'm not putting my pinky toenail into the mouth of that rabbit hole. That's not happening. We here at What Had Happened operate off of facts. So I won't be going down that whole train of whatever. We're going off of facts. What had happened is this. For one, David suffered from mental illness. Um, there was obviously, um, there was a, there was an obsession with violence. And I say that, and it started young. I said, it especially, um, was evident with his, um, loving to choreograph his war play, if you will. And you cannot tell me war play is not violent as someone who served this country, I can tell you that it's fucking violent. What makes the green grass grow? Blood. Blood makes the green grass grow. That's shit that we chant. That's shit that they burn into your brain. That kind of stuff. I remember having a drill sergeant in the army, drill sergeant Gutierrez, who had a little cadence that he liked and it went somewhere along the lines of I hear the choppers I hear the choppers coming they're flying overhead they've come to get the wounded they've come to get the dead it was an airborne ranger cadence uh the ones in the marine corps don't even get me started you know what I mean like we are trained to kill it's what we have to do to protect as a military. We are violent people in that capacity. Some of us can separate work from who we are as a person. Like, I don't personally go walking around like, I'm a trained killer. No, 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 no. But I know what I know. And I know how to do what I know how to do because that's what I did as a profession. That's separate from me as a person in my personal life, as a wife, a mom, a friend, a family member, whatever. You know what I mean? So for him, he had more of that lust for the violence because at 14 years old, he was essentially cosplaying. And simulating 
war. And he did it day in and day out with his best friend, with his ride or die. And I mean, yeah, it's kid play until it stops being kid play. Because airsoft and recording all of that stuff, that wasn't enough. Now we got to go into the military. Which, again, hey, thank you for your service. As a service member, I can thank you for your service. Especially since, you know, you went above and beyond. You deployed to places I never had to go to. You know, for, for that, I above and beyond thank you. However you had shit in your head about what it was going to be like. And then when you actually get there, Iraq in this instance for David, when he actually got there and it was no longer fake or choreographed, it was real people dying after a car bomb, an IED, you know, uh, it's different. It hits different. You don't get over the sights, the sounds, the smells. It becomes ingrained. You don't forget that kind of trauma. And then to have to witness that trauma, especially at such a young age, you know, to take in that trauma and then have to just bury it deep within and keep on going without getting any kind of help you know seeking therapy in some capacity to help process all of that shit ooh wee you got yourself you know the potentiality for someone snapping for sure so there's that Then you've also got how he was a super introvert and he also had a very, very, very small circle. Like he glommed onto Kamel as soon as he saw her. That's it. That's the one. And then it was just the two of them. Now, unfortunately for him, she still had a little bit of time to be on her own and socialize and you know live a little bit because they got married and two weeks later he deployed but I'm sure that they corresponded as often as they possibly could which becomes time consuming because you have to consider the fact that like her sleep schedule was running off of the time zone he was in so that they could try to communicate in real time, you know, a lot of times, if it was possible, that kind of stuff. Um, and that kind of becomes controlling if it's something that, like, he insists on, or he, and I don't know that this happened, or that he would, like, get on her about and kind of, like, make it something that she had to do where she would feel guilt, or he would guilt her if she wasn't available. Or question what she was doing if she wasn't there to respond to an email. There's layers to it, you know. Um, When he came home with his unit, he insisted that Kamel stay outside the gate. He didn't want her there for the homecoming. He said that he did not want the government dictating how he reunited with his wife. 
you know, the controlling factor of now he's out, we have this baby, and then plucking her out of Texas. I mean, it's not like they wouldn't have been without a support system. It would have just been her family's support around them as a family. And I feel like he knew he had to get distance between her and her family because they were so tight-knit. If they stayed in Texas, there was a potentiality of her family, you know, stepping in or stepping up if things weren't kosher. Um, And so he moves his family to Minnesota, which again, that was perfectly fine for him for what he needed. He absolutely, after doing 39 and a half months out of like most likely a 48 month contract needed to be with his family. I absolutely can understand him needing to be around people that love him support him who have known him his whole life absolutely but it also worked in his favor because it isolated his wife and daughter and you know removed them from having to deal with her family also he just it said that he despised islam and the muslim faith and all that stuff and so by bringing her to Minnesota and having her convert to Christianity and all this other stuff, it was just, you know, another way of removing that aspect of her past from their lives, which is super fucked up. I'm sorry, bro. Like, you met this woman, fell in love with this woman, you knew what this woman was, you knew where this woman came from, you hate what she is and where she comes from, but you marry her, that's fucked up. Because you try to, like, erase that part of her life. Like, listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting to convert to a different religion for your spouse, you know, or blending religions and all this other stuff. But when you've outwardly said some, like, hateful shit, it's it's very much not cool it's like being involved with someone and saying you like accept them for who they are but then I don't know for example making anti-semitic remarks about their family members knowing good and well that you know the person that you love is Jewish or making anti-islamic remarks about or you know islamophobic remarks about her family knowing that she herself is a woman who was born and raised in the Muslim faith. It's little energy. There's so much to unpack with this what had happened wrap up. Okay, so then we move on to going to school, which is great. But, you know, it did take its toll because Kamel was still supporting the family. Not only was she supporting her husband's dreams, 
She was also supporting the film, helping him. She was his right hand. Absolutely, she was his right hand. So we have to deal with taking in all of this dark, dank content. All of these beliefs that her husband is, you know, I'm sure spout. I feel like the scene from American History X when the father is still alive and he's talking about affirmative action and how he turns it into you mean affirmative black action and he goes into talking about how certain people he knows didn't get hired that deserve to be hired as white people over black people who didn't deserve the job just because of affirmative action and how the tone of that 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 conversation got really dark really quick and it went from like you know why are you why are you obsessed with your black teacher who's got you reading these books and this that and the other and all this other shit i feel like that's what the tone in that home you know it, it kind of got dark and she had a lot of stress on her because she had to take in all of this conspiratorial content on top of you know everything else and his paranoia because he actually absolutely had you know distrust with the government and he felt like you know they might try to silence the delivery of this project um you know so there was a lot of mental health that was fragile and needed to be helped for all because they were all taking in this dark content their daughter would talk about dark shit too and i mean like you if you've watched the documentary you'll remember you know she drew some pictures that depicted some stuff that was a bit troublesome for a child of that age you know um but that's just because children learn what they live and she was living in an environment where you know this is what they talked about a lot and it's really sad it's heartbreaking um he i believe he put all of his eggs into one basket because he knew he just knew that he was going to be able to control the executives you know the two mics in swaying them into going his way with this project and he was in over his head because they you know couldn't envision his vision completely they had a similar vision it just wasn't what he thought and what he had you know already been putting out there in the stratosphere and you know that right there is when he started to crack completely like and that's when things started to get darker um the isolation again when sidra and anjum were trying to communicate with kamel during this time as their mother as the their mother was getting super sick and just cutting them off at the pass left and right just saying no you cannot uh, was heartbreaking And I believe that in that final attempt at making contact in October, 
Kamel was in a really fragile state. And when David just, you know, cut her off again, I think that that is when she was just like, shit, I gotta drink the Kool-Aid. Or, you know, that's when she really started to deteriorate as well mentally. Um, And then combined, they were both living in that same state of delusion on top of not being able to accomplish what he thought he was going to accomplish as well as not making the money that they thought that they were going to come into from this. I believe that they had resigned to, you know, follow the, the way of the delusionment, the delusions. I don't know. Um, but at the same time, we'll never know if Kamel knew what David's plans were. Um, if she saw that part coming or if he really, really had a moment of isolated mental snappage and he murdered his family and then committed suicide knowing that he was going to do that to them but unbeknownst to his wife is what I'm getting at we'll never know uh and that's why I'm not gonna I'm not gonna speculate what we do know is it was a double homicide suicide and that's how we'll leave it it was such a difficult it's a it's a difficult one that was a very difficult uh, script to get through and because i'm i was in the military i completely understand how ptsd anxiety all of that stuff can play on the mental health of a person who has seen has seen shit and done shit and hasn't gotten any help knowing that there was a lot of mental illness to play that's why you got no dumpster juice alerts this was all super tragic should not have happened but unfortunately because there was no help for his mental illnesses and also his violent proclivities and thoughts because obviously there there were also a lot of weapons that they had that they had amassed as a couple um which was kind of scary as well um you know it's a lot i mean he depicted violence and when he couldn't depict violence anymore i think that was his safe outlet was depicting it in film form and when he was no longer able to source the funds to continue doing it in that manner which was safer uh, it it over it overcame him i don't know
Whew. Okay, guys, so I'm Kimberly. <laughs> this is what had happened, a true crime podcast. I absolutely, now that I am better, will be back very soon with another lesser-known true crime story. Eek. Here's some outro music. I love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you again for your love and support. <sighs> Happy holidays, everybody. Here's that outro music.